Good morning, St. Michael's. Will you stand? Lord, we are just so grateful to be in your presence this morning. I ask that you would humble our hearts. Let us lay aside everything that we brought in with us, everything that's been weighing heavy on us this week. Just let us lay it down at your feet as we proclaim who you are through this service. As we know that you are the true king, you are our God, and you're fighting for us day in and day out. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. Amen. Almighty God, you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Jesus said, the first commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. As we prepare to celebrate the mystery of Christ's love, let us acknowledge our sins and ask the Lord for pardon and strength. Most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what I have done and by what I have left undone. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I am truly sorry, and I humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me, that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you absolution remission of all your sins, true repentance, amendment of life, and the grace and consolation of his Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. To God in the highest, peace to His people on earth. Glory to God in the highest, peace to His people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, Almighty God and Father, we worship You, we give You thanks, we praise for Your glory, we worship You.
together the collect. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed the children. morning. Our first reading comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verses 6 through 12. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, come up here, than you should be put in the lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. Do not go hastily to court, for what will it... <laughs> For what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor. Do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame. Reputation be ruined. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. The word of the Lord. This morning's psalm is Psalm 112. Let's read responsively by the half verse. Hallelujah. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His descendants will be mighty on earth. Wealth and riches will be in his house. His righteousness Unto the upright there rises light the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and right. 
A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is established. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, today's New Testament reading is going to be Hebrews 13, 1 through 8. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among us, and the bed undefiled, and the body also. Marriage is honoring among all, and the bed unfilled. Excuse me, sorry about that. But the, unfor- but the fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without cov- covetous. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you and who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow concerning the overcome of their, of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word of the Lord. Christ according to St. Luke. Glory be to you, Lord. St. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. 
Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, Lord Christ. Give us the joy, the peace, the righteousness that you have promised and make us more like you that we might love those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, this morning we get to continue our journey in Exodus. We started last week and we talked about tyranny. Exodus is kind of a dramatic book. I don't know if you guys know that, right? We start with 
an evil, wicked king killing the firstborn or the, the male children of the Hebrews, throwing them into the Nile to be devoured by crocodiles. Like, at the surface, because we are so exposed to such hyper-sensationalized media and movies and ideas, we can even think like, wow, what a crazy idea, throwing the babies to the crocodiles. But just imagine the horror of this situation, living in a place where your brand new baby gets fed to the crocodiles. And we made some connections here. Not only to the difficulty of the mother in that particular circumstance, who is attacked, assaulted, forced to give up her baby to the tyrannical forces of her day, but also to the absolute attack on the fathers in our culture today. Remember that we talked about things, and I'm just going to give you a quick list, and I think your ears will perk up as you hear this, and you might start making connections between the crocodiles of the Nile and the forces of this day and age that are once again seeking to devour the fathers and the mothers that God wants to raise up to build his kingdom. There's divorce rampant in the land, homosexuality, transgenderism, Hookup culture enabled by easy access to birth control. Netflix, social media, iPhones, the addictions of our day and age. Online companionship, I'll say as I censor myself. Places where people go to be surrogate fathers and mothers through their fulfillment online. Video games are a great example of that. What is the father supposed to do? He's going to go out and he's going to take dominion. He's going to establish his household. Well, in Skyrim, one of the most popular games on the planet that I happen to love, you go out and you make a name for yourself. You establish your household. You become one of the most powerful in the land. And you get this surrogate feeling that you are fulfilling some calling in your life. And I think you can make that connection between all of these things. We watch movies about these wonderful ro romantic comedies where the girl falls in love with the smashing general man, the, the, the guy who, you know, at first he's a bit rough around the edges, but by falling in love with this girl, she transforms him into the prince. All of these stories are calling out to us and our culture to capture our attention, to capture our hearts to lead us in a way that will that we're actually called to live out in our life. I'm wandering a little bit as I think about all the different ways that the tyranny of our culture does not dictate to us, you will do this and you will do that, so much as it whispers to us, come, enjoy yourself, relax, take a load off, go sit and be entertained, by this massive industry. What it does, though, is like the cutting of Samson's hair in a later story in this book, it drains us of the vigor and strength that God has given us to go out and conquer the world. You know that's our job, right? Our job is to bring the, this world into the kingdom of our God. We are born to be conquerors, men and women both. Fathers and mothers establishing the kingdom of God on earth. And all of these things that are coming at us 
You almost need like a special pair of spiritual glasses to put on, right? And the reverse of this, we need our eyes opened because we're so blind to all the different pathways that the enemy is seeking to use to take away your God-given purpose. So we talked about the Egypt that Moses and the Israelites were facing, that tyranny, and we made a link between that and the various subtle ways that we are being tempted to enslave ourselves in this day and age. And I could go on and on about this. It's one of my favorite subjects. Actually, I've listened to books. I've done podcasts on how the psychology of our age is completely different because of the introduction of technology. Anxiety's up. Depression's up. Loneliness is up. Fatherhood is way down, abysmally down, catastrophically down. The birth rate is plummeting. People are not becoming the fathers and mothers in their households because of all these different things. But what we learned last week is that just like the Israelites who were enslaved by a wicked tyranny, God had a plan. And God still to this day has a plan. So today what we're going to learn about is what was God's plan to free Israel from Egypt. We left off last week with the worst slavery where they're increasing the demands on their work. They're killing the male children of the Hebrews. They're upping the ante of oppression. And yet God continued to multiply the Hebrew people in that time. A little bit of hope that even in the midst of a wicked tyranny, God can accomplish his purposes in our life. And we left with Moses being drawn up out of the river by Pharaoh's daughter to be raised in the household of Pharaoh. God was preparing, even at that point, a savior for Israel. Now, here's the part where we get a little reality check. Between that point and what we're talking about today... The beginning of Moses' life that we get to hear about is 40 years. Imagine how angry we are when for four years we have to deal with a candidate in the presidency that we may not like. We get angry at that, and yet God's salvation for Israel while they're dealing with a tyrannical king who's literally killing their children, 40 years God had a plan of deliverance for them. God works on a different time scale, but there is always salvation in God, right? So as we start today, let's keep that in mind. We're 40 years later as we look at where Moses has now been raised as a prince of Egypt. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. When you're in suffering, I don't know if there is a more comforting idea than that the God of the universe knows your suffering. It doesn't take away the suffering, but it puts the suffering in an eternal context. That the good God who is working all things for our good and his glory knows your suffering. He knows where you're at. 
And so we see that verse preps us for it's all going to change. Just watch. Just hold on. God knows and he is acting. Wherever you're at in your life, just watch. Just hold on. God knows he is acting on your behalf. So we have Moses raises a prince and he's 40 years old at this point. Raised in a life of luxury, power, influence. He's an influencer in Egypt. And he thinks, you know what would be really great is if I went out and I rescued the Hebrew people, my people. Okay, I'm speculating a little bit here, but in the text it says he's around 40. We know from the text that he's like 40 years old and he goes out to see the burdens of his people. And you can just imagine, I mean, I'm not even 30 yet, and I already think I've got this whole game figured out. I already think that I'm the bee's knees. I already think I know what I'm doing. He's 40 years old, a prince of Egypt. He knows what he's doing. He's going to go out, and he's going to rescue the Hebrew people. Now, there's a fascinating idea here in my speculation that God had given Moses, in his heart of hearts, the call to be the rescuer of the people of Israel. But just like any one of us, when he goes out and he sees the call, he feels the call to rescue these people. He goes out, he sees the burden of the Hebrews. He sees an actual person, an Egyptian, beating one of his people. He thinks that he's going to do the right thing. He's going to step in and save the day. And he kills this Egyptian man who he sees beating a Hebrew slave. And just like that, the enemy turns that God-given call in his heart to rescue, to save, to be the instrument of God's redemption, to murder. Keep that in mind as you think about your own life. You have a God-given call, maybe as a husband, to provide for your family. And so you go out and you get that really nice car or couch or TV because God gave me a call to provide for my family. But in so doing, you don't listen to what God wanted you to spend your money on. Or you get yourself into a burden of debt, another extremely potent method of slavery in the modern tyranny of the United States of America. There is more debt now than there has ever been in the history of the world, and specifically in the history of the United States. It has grown exponentially. There's ways that the enemy would like to enslave you. And this moment happens in Moses' life. And if we were writing the story, story's over. He's a murderer now. Not only is a murderer, he tried to hide the body. He had, as far as we know, no regret over this. He kills the man, hides the body. And the only reason why his life changed is because somebody found out about it. And now Pharaoh's out to kill him. Now he is actually identified with the Hebrew people, like he should have been all along. He's once again the Hebrew male that must be killed, right? He's under the same burden, the same edict now, as he escaped when he was a child. By his own actions, he has gotten himself into this mess. But of course we know, and this is the good thing about God, that that was all a part of what God wanted to happen in his life. Not that he wanted Moses to go up and murder somebody, but God's not dumb. He looks at us, he sees our mistakes, and he works out his plan over the course of our lifetime. So he runs away to the desert. And where else to learn to be who God wants you to be but the desert? The scouring place, the difficult place, the hard place, the dry place. This is where God shapes his people. 
Now, we live pretty close to a desert. When we were driving across the country, we went through uh, the Mojave Desert, which is unbelievably hot. It was like 110 degrees. It was I can't imagine escaping into the desert. It doesn't feel great. But God knows how to bring a desert in your life without actually geographically moving you to that place, right? Every one of us have been in a wilderness experience, a desert experience. So as we see Moses going out here, we can all identify with that place. And you know what? I think his wilderness was a heck of a lot worse because of the burden of sin and guilt and shame in his life. He went from thinking he was going to be all that, he was going to be an influencer, a prince in Egypt, to being a murderer fugitive on the run. This is not a fun place to be. But God was using this to shape Moses in this time. So we're going to kind of breeze through some of this. He flees to Midian. He marries a woman named Zipporah. Oh, beautiful Zipporah. I don't know. It's an odd name, but let's just imagine that it was beautiful at the time, you know. So Zipporah becomes his wife. He ends up having a wonderful father-in-law, Jethro. You guys remember from the Prince of Egypt? Look through heaven's eyes, right? You know, he's got that great, wonderful presence. We do know that later on he helps Moses a lot with the wisdom. So that's a good note for you young men and women is you want to marry into a good family. Let me just tell you that. It makes a difference when you marry into a good family. I learned a ton from my wife's grandfather, who really is the reason she's a Christian today, is because of his Christian witness. And it made a difference in my life. So that's kind of a side note, maybe a bonus lesson. If you're looking for a husband or wife, look at their family. It matters. Um, so he marries into this great family, and he's in the wilderness for 40 more years. This is a theme in this guy's life, right? You guys know what's around the corner. Even the Israelites, after they escape Egypt, another 40 years in the desert. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't actually choose to trade with Moses. If I had the option, I'd rather live in Southern California where it's like 85 and we're like, oh my gosh, it's so hot. No, this guy lived 40 years in the desert watching over cattle, like one of the most boring jobs, at least the way I've heard it described in the history of the world. And yet that was the place, that was the place where God could use Moses after 40 years in the desert. And we get really frustrated when five years later, God hasn't fulfilled his promises to us. Or God hasn't gotten me to this job or this vocation that I knew I was called to do. Let's just get on God's time, right? Let's get on God's time. And so for 40 years, this guy is completely changed, transformed by his job as a nomad in the desert, shepherding. He's been broken down. All of those tyrannies that he had. Now, this is, this is a reading I got from some of the ancient church fathers. Moses had to escape the tyranny of Egypt and go through the desert before the Israelites could escape Egypt and go through the desert. You see, he's the model. He had to go through it so that he could lead Israel through it. God was actually creating this amazing symmetry in his life. So that he could be the one that says, no, I understand you leave Egypt and there is a desert. That's not a mistake. It's part of the way God is moving in us, right? So we see this great symmetry in this story. And then the burning bush. 
Now, there is so much to talk about with the burning bush, and we are just not going to get to any part. So for those of you out there who are like hoping for a real deep theological dive into every word, we're just not going to do it. We're going to do a broad brush over the bush. And so here it is, this burning bush. But there's something weird about it. Apparently, it's not that odd for bushes to be on fire in the desert. I read this too. Out there, it can get so hot that bushes will actually spontaneously catch on fire, which just sounds awful to me. Why would anybody live there? But he finds out that this bush is actually not being burned. Well, that's odd. That's unusual. And that's where we pick up this story. And it says that he sees this He sees the bush, he notices it's not being burned, and he decides he's going to stop and see this great sight. And then it says, the Lord sees that Moses has turned to check out the bush, and then he starts talking to him. So what's happening here, right? We're almost told the same information twice. Moses says, I'm going to stop and see the bush. God sees that Moses says he's going to stop and see the bush, and then God's able to start talking. What are they trying to say here? It's actually important that Moses stop to look at the bush. That's actually something we need to pay attention to. That's why it's repeated. Because, thank God, Moses didn't have an iPhone. Candy Crush probably would have distracted him from the fact that there was a burning bush that wasn't being consumed. There was something in Moses in the desert where his eyes were open to see God at work. He was ready to hear God's instructions. If God really is in all of creation, then what bush isn't a burning bush filled with the glory of God? Now, I do think there are significant moments where God appears, like in particular, this burning bush is a foreshadowing of the incarnation of God in the flesh in Jesus. There's something special going on here. But there's also a lesson to be learned for opening our eyes and seeing the glory of God in the world that he has made. And so Moses, is, Moses stops, he's able to see, and he's going to look at this burning bush. And that's where God starts talking to him. Now, what do we know the burning bush for? The most famous part of this burning bush thing is that we actually hear the name of God, right? He gives them a name. I am that I am or who I am. There's a lot of different ways of saying it. Yahweh, or sometimes translated in other places, Jehovah, but we think Yahweh is more accurate, right? Yahweh, the name of God. What's the point of making a big deal about a name? We were already calling him Elohim. We had other names for him. Why is it important? Yahweh. Well, in fact, Yahweh and the naming of God is the central theme of the entire book of Exodus. couple of verses just to show you where we're coming from here. In Exodus 6, God says, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So this is God explaining what he's doing here, right? The reason why it's significant is that the people of Israel need to know who God is. After 400 years in Egypt, they've forgotten the name of the Lord. So what does that mean, right? 
I've got other verses here. I'm actually just going to skip them. You'll have to trust me that the name of God will come up as we go through this book a bunch of times. Why does he um, deliver Israel out of Egypt with his mighty hand? So that the name of the Lord will be known, not only to the Israelites, but to Pharaoh and to the whole earth. Man, God is a megalomaniac, huh? He has to do all this stuff so that people know who he is. Is he obsessed with fame? No, there's something that he wants the world to know about who he is, right? Because what happens after the garden, after the temptation, after the fall, is that we, uh, there's this great line from this book that I read is, I've forgotten the face of my father, right? And that's what you say when you're sorry because you've done something shameful or abysmal. I've forgotten the face of my father. That's all of humanity has forgotten who God is. Now, I have a little story to illustrate what's going on here. Let's say that some girl walked through the door of this church, some young lady, beautiful young lady. And my brother Christian, who I get to pick on because he's up in the broadcast room right now, so he can't, he could probably turn my mic off up there, but not down here. So Christian looks and he's smitten by this young lady. She's just beautiful. She walks in with this presence. And what does he do? He goes up to somebody, what's her name? It's Zipporah, right? Because it's, you know, it's in the book. So we'll call her Zipporah. Zipporah. And he's just like, he has this awe and this wonder at the name of this girl. And he starts building up this idea of who she is based on nothing but a name, right? That's all he has. It's not enough. Then he has to get to know who she is. So why do I bring that up? I think we get lost when we focus so much on the one name of God, Yahweh. As important as it is, it isn't a magic talisman that tells you who God is. It's conceivable that you could think of Yahweh, the name, and imagine a completely different person. Let's say he comes to find out that Zipporah doesn't like football, and he's just over it, right? This girl that I made up who walked into the church, who's beautiful, who doesn't like football, who could imagine? There is this idea here where there's a name of God, but they actually, he actually says more in the burning bush than just, my name is Yahweh. And we miss some of that because we focus so much on what does he mean? I am that I am. What this, this cool moment, and you see it in the cartoon where it's like this big glowing moment, I am that I am. Sorry, I'm editing on the fly here because there's just too much to talk about. But what does he say that he wants them to know when he says, what is his name? We're going to skip ahead. Exodus 3.13. God basically told Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt, and you're going to tell Pharaoh to release my people, and the elders are going to go with you, and I'm going to use you to deliver them out of Egypt. So Moses has a lot of questions here, right? This guy who was a murderer fugitive, ran away to the desert and has been a shepherd for 40 years, somehow doesn't think that he has the capability to convince the people of Israel that God sent him and to accomplish the deliverance of Israel from the most powerful king in all the land. I wonder why. If he's a reasonable person, he might be afraid of this task that God has given him. So he has a list. There's like 10 questions he asked God. Here's one of them. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, and this is important, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So what's going on here? God gives them a name. He gives them a name by which to know him. But more than that, he says, you shall know me by I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's happening here? He's saying, my name is only a signifier of who I am. Who I am is the God who saved, promised, delivered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know what? After Exodus, you know how God's known? Not only by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but then he's known as the God who delivered us from Egypt. Who did all these things with his mighty hand. Who brought us to the promised land. So what's the point here? What does it matter, the name of God? It matters to remember who God has been to us. That's what God wants the Israelites to remember. That God has a relationship to them. That he is known by the way that he has interacted with them for generations. That he is known by the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So during the burning bush, what is God telling Moses? He's saying, remind Israel that I'm the God who has already done miracles for them. I set them up. I have promises to fulfill in them. That's how God makes himself known to us. In fact, that's really, if you think about it, how we get to know anybody. How do you know each other? By your interactions with one another. You can only learn so much. From a name. You can only learn so much from even a description. In fact, I would say that the challenge to us is if you're going to know God, you need to know him by what he has done. That's why we're looking at the books of Exodus, but also by what he has done with you. You need to actually relate to him. You need to have history with God. His name is so much more than just a name. It's a reference to who he is and how he has revealed himself to us. So we're going to move forward a little bit in this story. What's happening here is Moses is having this conversation with God, and he's objecting over and over again to what God's asking him to do. He He frames it as questions, but each one of them is an objection. Well, what should I even say? How are they even going to know that I'm coming from you? And we're going to skip over to... Okay, let's go to verse 18. So God told them, this is how you're going to introduce yourself. And now God's going to say, this is what's going to happen when you go to the elders of Egypt. This funny thing about God, he actually knows what's going to happen when he tells you to do something, right? So when God tells you to do that crazy thing, like, I don't know, why don't you go give $5 to that lady at the checkout line? He already knows what he wants to accomplish at that point. And so there's a comfort in this, right? He gives Moses the promise in these verses. But if you listen carefully, he also prepares him for the challenge. So he tells him his name with which to introduce himself to the Israelites, to get them on his side. That's the goal here, right? You're going to get the elders to go with you to confront Pharaoh. And now he's going to tell them the promise. This is what's going to happen. And they will listen to your voice. 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know what the king of Egypt will not that I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Okay, so Moses just went from get the people of Israel out of Egypt to also rob the Egyptians while you're there. On your way out, you're going to take all their things. Moses is a little scared of what's going on here, and rightly so. And God kind of buries the lead, right? He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Which is really nice speak for. He's going to be murderously angry with you. And I'm going to have to bring the seven plagues, the big, scary, bad things that are going to come, the things that are literally talked about to this day as an example of the wrath of God in order to accomplish this thing. But he's giving Moses the promise that this is going to happen. So then Moses starts his list of stringent objections, right? After all of this that God has said, Moses basically says, but the Israelites aren't going to believe me anyway. God told them they're going to go with you. And Moses is like one of us. But God, it doesn't work that way. It'd be like God saying to one of us, you should just stroll into the house of the governor and tell him, hey, Gavin Newsom, you need to do these things and you need to make a tax cut and you need to provide whatever legal thing. Like he could give you a list of demands and he's expecting you to walk into the palace of the governor or the office of the president. And Moses has some problems with that, right? Not only that, but among the Hebrew people, he's known as a murderer. And so he's also been gone for 40 years and he's going to go back and this murderer is going to come and say, yeah, your God, who hasn't been doing much for you as far as you can tell, showed up to me and you're going to be on my side and we're going to go confront the guy who's basically killing your people with work and literally killing them as men, children. And so God says, okay, I understand your objections, Moses. Let me help you out with this one, right? And he gives them three signs for the Israelites. The first one is a staff. He says, throw your staff on the ground, and it becomes a snake. Now, this is really fascinating, and I don't have a lot of time to get into snake imagery, but what does that remind you of? A snake. Oh, the garden? The enemy? I told you guys before that this has always been read as a parable of our own spiritual journey from the slavery of sin to the kingdom of God. And so first he has the sign of the serpent that then God gives him the power to pick up the staff and conquering the serpent, you'll kind of hear this language, becomes his staff of authority by which the miracles are going to be done. Power over the enemy, right? What was the promise in Genesis? That man and the snake would have an enmity and that he would crush your head and you would bruise his heel And Jesus, of course, is our ultimate fulfillment of the power over the snake, the enemy. Well, we get a prefiguring of that in Moses. 
God says, throw your staff down, and there's a deadly snake, and he says, grab it by the tail, and it will become the symbol of my authority in you, the conquering of the snake. That's a good challenge for us. The sin that God has redeemed you from, greater is he that is in you than he is in the world, is the authority by which we walk as Christian men and women. The staff of Moses is a symbol of our victory over sin and death. The enemy has no more power. God has robbed that from him. And so you see this beginning sign. And then we see the next one, the leprosy healed. Well, not only is God giving us the power to conquer sin, but he is also healing us of our affliction. Right? Moses puts his hand into his coat. He takes it out, and it's leprous. The scary example of death, of our decaying bodies. And yet God has the power to reverse Death, to raise us up from even the grave, to rescue us from the power of sin and death. So there's these symbols within the signs. I always thought growing up, like, I wonder why he chose those ones. These are the reasons. Because he's giving them symbols and metaphors and ideas, typology. He's giving them types of what God will do in the salvation of Jesus in our life, right? God operates the same way today as he did back then. These are all hopes and signs for us today to have faith that God can conquer sin in our life, the snake of sin, the leprosy, the symbol of death in our bodies. And then his last one, the water of the Nile will become blood. You know, the Egyptians worshiped the Nile as a god. But God transforms the Nile. It's both a picture of slaying of that god and that blood which covers all of our sins. Right? All of these things are symbols and metaphors that bring us closer to understanding what God is doing in this story. God's not random. I don't know if you guys know that. He's pretty cool with uh, his ability to weave in things that were completely dissonant into a symbol of his salvation. Right? And we see that throughout this entire story. And Moses, he's literally seeing these signs happen, these miracles right in front of his face. Just like one of us, he has more objections. Wait, but God, I'm not a public speaker. I'm not really good at talking. I am slow of speech. And God, at this point, you can hear in God's voice a level of, uh, I don't know if you can accuse God of being impatient, but there is something here that God wants Moses to remember who I am, right? Because what does God say when Moses says, but I, I, I'm slow of speech. Some people think maybe he had a stutter. He said, who made man's mouth? Is it not I? Like, what do you mean, Moses? But you know what? He fell for the classic blunder, Right? He fell for the classic blunder. He thought that his salvation of the Jews, of the Hebrews, of the Israelites, had to do with him. He fell for the classic blunder. No, it's God's mighty hand. Throughout the entire thing, Moses is an instrument. Moses is just an instrument in the hands of God. And then he goes down, and I love this. This is the last one, right? Where This is where we're ending with Moses today. We're just going to get through this. He says, oh, Lord, please send someone else. The last refuge of the rebellious heart. Lord, please, not me. And God, it says God gets angry at him. And this is what I love, right? God gets angry at him, but this is what God says. 
Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. So God's angry, but I mean, he didn't tell Moses that Aaron was on his way until this point. He didn't tell, he already had a plan for Moses's ineptitude. He already had a plan for Moses's lack of desire to be the one. He had things in motion to provide for him and he wanted Moses to trust him. That's what we keep singing about, right? But I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves, right? He wanted him to look to God and his power, but Moses just kept pushing. And so God said, well, I've already provided even for that. I like this one, right? What does he say? He says, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he can speak well. It's like God can make anybody speak well, but he's playing. I'll play your silly game, right? That's what he says to Moses. I'll play your silly game. I've provided even for your fear of speaking out. So Moses then has no more objections, which praise God, right? As stubborn and intransient as he might seem in this exchange, he went to Egypt. He went before Pharaoh and he never stopped doing what God told him to do. From that day on, you can read his entire life. They call him, they, they sing his praises in the New Testament and they say he was a type of Christ because when the rubber met the road, he did what God asked him to do. He made mistakes. He went overboard. Those are some of the most fun stories with Moses. But ultimately, we can look at this man and say, if he, a murderer with a stutter, as some people think, or slow to speak, could lead the nation of Israel from the tyranny of Egypt, how much more so Christ in us can lead us from a tyranny into the promised land? Christ has no deficiencies and no objections to leading us out of our own darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen? So just around the corner is the showdown between the tyrant and Yahweh. And we'll pick that back up next week. Amen? We'll continue with the prayers of the people. Brothers and sisters, God told us that he'll never forsake us. Therefore, taking him at his word, let's bring our requests and those of the whole world for him. That your church will lovingly and courageously expose evil wherever it exists in society. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer that the witness of the persecuted church will lead to the conversion of their oppressors. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. That governments will work to provide opportunities for all their people without prejudice, especially to the poor, the disabled, the marginalized. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. The young men of faith and integrity will be raised up in ordination in order to lead God's church and his people in future generations. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. That we will be protected from all danger, violence, natural disasters, and terrorism. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And that we will be humble and generous people, expecting nothing in return. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 
for our own special intentions. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, you're the God who meets all our needs. Hear our prayer and give us the grace to be content under any circumstances. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Peace of the Lord be always with you. With your spirit. Turn and greet your neighbor with the peace. Well, what a great word that. I'll tell you, this kid, he's got it, and we want it. So what a wonderful experience to uh, come and hear him preach the word. Well, what do we have for uh, news, Eric? Well, we got, uh, they're asking us to save the date for October 2nd after church. We're going to do our annual St. Michael's picnic. And we're going to do it here on campus at our church, um, which leads me into, again, just uh, uh, yesterday we had uh, John and his son John come out and finish up the partitions in the school bathrooms, which already uh, Kenneth and his company have done a big remodel in there. And so just more stuff happening here to just fix up this place, make it nice and beautify this building that God's given us. So I'm just, I'm so thankful for all that work that everyone's done. And uh, I hope we can all come together and enjoy it on October 2nd. No, I think it's, I'm so, I'm so glad we're doing it here this year. And I realize with all the restrictions and, you know, for years and years, that place was so occupied down there with preschool and equipment and stuff that it was very, very difficult to do these things. But now it's it's uh, not, and so I'm really looking forward to uh, doing it here for a change. Yes. Yeah, so also, uh, there's a ladies' meeting on September 10th, in which you ladies will need to come together and help put together a plan for what I just talked about. <laughs> so uh, please, please come out and help us help us get organized, ladies. <laughs> and men, don't forget the men's retreats coming up. If you don't know the dates, we have them. And it's going to be an amazing time as we come together again. My understanding is we're going on up to the mountain. Amen. Yes, we are. And I'm hoping there'll be no burning bushes. <laughs> so I did forget to say one thing. We're all called to be burning bushes, right? You got that. That was It was buried in there somewhere. Beacons of the presence of God to those around us. Because this isn't just for us. It's for everyone that we encounter. Amen? As we prepare to receive the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, let us respond to God's word by engaging with him in musical worship and presenting to God our tithes and offerings out of that which God has given to us. Together, through Christ, let us continually offer to God the sacrifice of praise 
That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. But do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Jesus. 
This is the table of the Lord. It's meditating for those who love him, but for those who want to love him even more. Come if you have much faith. Come if you have little. Come if you've been here often or if you haven't been here long. You who've tried to follow and you who've failed, you come. Because it's the Lord who invites you. It's his will that those who want him should meet him here. Come this morning to the table. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Father, all-powerful and ever-living God, we do well always and everywhere to give you thanks. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through his cross and resurrection, he freed us from sin and death and called us to the glory that's made us a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart. Everywhere we proclaim your mighty works, for you called us out of darkness into your own wonderful light. And so with all the choir of angels in heaven, we proclaim your glory, and we join in their unending hymn of praise. your Holy Spirit come upon these gifts to make them holy, so they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before he's given up to death, the death he freely accepted, he took bread, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When supper is ended, he took the cup, and again he gave thanks and praise. He gave it to them, and he said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant, to shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Mm -hmm. 
let us proclaim this mystery of faith. Christ Christ has died, died. Christ Christ is risen, risen. and Christ Christ will come come again. In memory of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Father, this life-giving bread and this saving cup. We thank you for counting us worthy to stand in your presence and serve you. May all of us who share in the body and blood of Jesus be brought together in unity by the Holy Spirit. Lord, remember your church throughout the world and make us grow in love, together with our patriarch, Craig, and all of the clergy. Remember those for whom we now pray, Susan, Naomi, Sonia, and Sandra, and Tammy and Denisha, Daniel, Ron, and Bob, and Henry, David, Lucian, Eric, E, Nicholas, Dave, Steve, the Marines and sailors at Camp Pendleton, and all of our armed forces, and for Donna. Draw our hearts to remember the poor and the broken, and as we receive the body and blood of Jesus, may we be transformed, become the body of Christ to the world. Have mercy on us all, make us worthy to share eternal life with the apostles and the martyrs and all the saints. May we praise you in union with them and give you glory through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty God and Father now and forever. Jesus taught us to call God our Father, and we have courage to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy upon us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us thy peace. The gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on them in your heart with thanksgiving. Blessed are those who are called separate lamb.
of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you have fed us with spiritual food in the sacrament of his body and blood. Send us now into the world in peace and grant us strength and courage to love and serve you with gladness and singleness of heart. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Say, Michael, the archangel, defend us in the battle and be our protection against the wickedness snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world seeking the ruin of our souls. Remember the gospel God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world himself, not counting men's sins against him. And he loves us. He's forgiven us. He's not mad at us. Best of all, He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Jesus.